0: Well, thank you so much for having me. I have appreciated the last few days of great weather in Oxford, so thank you for allowing me to have that. Uh, it's, been, it's been a joy just to spend time here. For those of you who've had the displeasure of having to listen to me speak before, I apologize. I'm going to start off with maybe 20-some minutes of some of the, 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 the base information about the South China Morning Post and what's happening at the paper. I think some of you guys might have already heard me go through this again, uh, before, Stuart, very specifically, you, I apologize, it's probably the fourth time you've heard me talk, you've heard me talk about this, uh, but I want to make sure that we're starting from the same basis of understanding of where the paper's at and, uh, and what we are going through, uh, and then I'm, I will go through in more detail about sort of the three parallel transformations that are happening at the news organization, and then happy to open up and move the discussion in whichever direction uh, you guys want, want it to go. So uh, let me start off very quickly with an introduction of SCMP for those of you in the room who might not be as familiar with it. It was founded in 1903, always been based in Hong Kong. Uh, and early on when it was originally founded, the primary clientele were actually the uh, trading ships that were coming in and out of Victoria Harbour. Uh, Hong Kong's port at that point, one of the busiest ports in the world, still today is one of the five busiest trading ports in the world. And the purpose of the newspaper from the very beginning was actually to tell the story of of Southern China to the rest of the world. Southern China, of course, included the British colony of Hong Kong, but more importantly for the original, at the very least, one of the two original co-founders, was to tell the story of the rising revolution happening just north of the border in, uh, in, in Canton against the the uh, well, against really the the, uh, the dynasty that was still in power at that point it was a re- effectively a republican revolt uh, and the intent was to actually spread the story of this revolution around the world now both of the two co-founders, one British newspaper man named Alfred Cunningham and this a uh, Chinese revolutionary who was raised in, in Australia actually. Uh, his name is in, in Mandarin uh, Xie Zhantai. Both of those two gentlemen were out of the business within seven years of the business's founding and uh, there's re- actually very little written about the latter years of their life and we don't really know what happened uh, with the rest of their careers. But from then on the newspaper really became part of the Hong Kong establishment it ended up being run by board of conveners in Hong Kong of, of uh, rich and powerful men, as lots of news organizations were at that point, and probably still are today. And uh, over the course of time, it became a publicly traded company. It was at one point largely owned by HSBC. Then it changed hands and was bought for uh, by Rupert Murdoch for a few years, part of Murdoch's attempt to aggregate local newspapers uh, around the Asia-Pacific region. And then in the early 90s, the ownership transferred to a Malaysian tycoon who's largely based in Hong Kong named Robert Kwok. Robert Kwok's family owns the Shangri-La Hotels as well as the Kerry group of logistics companies. Um, I think they originally started with sugarcane, uh, uh, something like that. Or palm oil. Some, I, don't, I don't know. It's one of the, one of the two. Um, and Robert and his family, the Kwok family, owned the newspaper for 20 plus years until 2016. During that period of time, uh, the South China Morning Post was, uh, for, for a good chunk of that time, the most profitable newspaper in the world per copy. And it had a, a lot to do with the fact that not only was it considered the English language newspaper of record for Hong Kong, it was also the primary place for English language classifieds and advertising. It was the one channel of communication for the entire commercial world in Hong Kong. And so the paper used to be thick as a brick, mostly because of classifieds, uh, incredibly profitable. But as news industries go, uh, in the early 2000s, the news industry started declining quite fast in Hong Kong. Now, the decline actually in Hong Kong, for those of you who know the, uh, the media industry in the city, was quite late compared to other regions of the world, certainly compared to the United States, which is the marketplace I know the best. It was quite late for a number of reasons. There was still a propensity to, to read uh, printed paper. But more importantly, it was ease of distribution. Hong Kong is a tiny place um, with that, that is incredibly uh, packed into a small amount of land. Uh, and so there are a couple of major choke points in, in traffic around Hong Kong, and those have always been some of the most efficient distribution areas for literally printed newspaper in the world. And so the paper was always very much part of everyday a person's life just based on transport. And so the decline actually happened much later in Hong Kong than in other places. But the decline happened and uh, many newspapers, including the South China Morning Post, uh, for probably seven, eight years went through a period where uh, every single year we were just cutting and cutting and cutting. And there were double digit percentages and drop in advertising revenue and distribution subscription revenue. Uh, and the newspaper industry certainly, like in many other places, ended up in a place of peril. In 2016, April of 2016, to be precise, the newspaper changed hands once again uh, and is now 100% owned by the Chinese Internet. I mean company, it's a, it's a, it's a behemoth, Alibaba. And so Alibaba owns the company outright, uh, bought it from the Quacks. Um, sold off, well, at the very least, uh, only acquired the media side of the business. The SEMP had actually expanded into real estate and into other publishing uh, ancillary businesses. But just the media side of the business, which is the newspaper and the magazine businesses, were acquired by Alibaba. And over the course of the last two years, uh, Alibaba's resources have been put into play. And by resources, I, li- I mean money, uh, have been put into play to try and once again uh, hopefully revive the news organization to not only be one of importance in the city of Hong Kong, and the region, but increasingly all over the world, which I will talk more at length about. Um, The purpose of the paper today is really going full circle back to 1903 and the founding of the news organization. Uh, The purpose of the paper is actually relatively easy to articulate. Our mission is to lead the global conversation about China. Each of those words is chosen with precision. Um, our goal is not to just broadcast at you about what's going on in our corner of the world. It is to participate in conversation. But we do believe that we have an accountability to actually lead into that conversation. China versus Asia, we also decided when we were uh, stating our current mission, and again, that mission might change in five years, and ten years, But our precise mission today, uh, the reason why our focus is on China very specifically is that we do believe that that the the world in general uh, still has limited information and access to information uh, and sort of limited comprehension of what the rise of China actually means not only for Asia but impact across the entire world. The conversation has been largely dichotomous. Uh, Certainly, there's propaganda coming out of mainland China, which, frankly, we still believe is important for anyone who wants to understand China has to read it. You have to know what the Beijing government wants the world to know. So we still believe that there's importance to it, but do understand that it is very much propaganda. Uh, And then there is the other side of the dichotomy, which is global news organizations that have a limited purview into China, primarily because of resources. This is a country that still massively limits the movement of foreign correspondents, and it's actually getting worse uh, with time, certainly in the last year or so. And, and also, because of the, just the, the, the economics of the news industry, there are fewer and fewer foreign correspondents that represent global news organizations within China. So on a really, really good day, a major global newspaper will have four or five people in China reporting on this massive country with this complexity. Uh, and it's very, very hard to, to capture all the nuance. As I've said multiple times before, the South China Morning Post, we believe that our role, because we have this really unique position of being within China, uh, because we're based in Hong Kong, but because Hong Kong has a separate uh, judiciary system, has uh, protection of freedom of press and freedom of of speech, allows us to actually publish, uh, without any restriction, what we see, but with the intimacy of being in a Chinese city. On top of that, we have the ability to actually send our journalists, many of whom are Hong Kong residents, born and raised in Hong Kong, into China without the necess- without the, the, the uh, restriction of foreign correspondents trying to get visas into China. And so we can have, as we do, uh, a presence of between 30 to 40 people in China at any given point, in mainland China, at any given point in time. So we do have a very unique role and unique, uh, I guess, both uh, advantage and accountability and our ability to view China with a little bit more comprehension. But I've also said this, the South China Morning Post is not going to fix this problem. Uh, We can only do so much. We can try and cover the gap that exists between this dichotomy, these two dichotomies, or these two sides of the dichotomous conversation. But we ourselves are not going to fill the entire gap. Our hope, certainly, is to see the number of journalists reporting on China, understanding China, uh, grow over the years, not just from us, but from all other news organizations. And to see there be uh, an increased density and intelligent discourse around what the rise of China means for the world. So that is the mission of the news organization today. So effectively, what I'm saying is that our transformation as a news company, which a lot of people, when they think about the transformation of any news company today, they kind of just boil it down to this very simplistic transition of going from print to digital. For us, print to digital is just a means to an end, because the true transformation we care most about is going from being a regional newspaper that is serving a specific city to being a global media company that has expertise on a specific region. And we think that that is our our, uh, accountability and also where we're going to find the most authority as a news organization. So, what does that transformation actually look like? We've carved out our transformation in three parallel changes and all three of these things they do have to happen at the same time with the same amount of focus uh, with to some degree the same amount of resources. So let me very quickly walk through what each of these three parallel transformations are. The first one is culture and identity. The news organization as a whole today is being built, and I'll talk about speed in a second, but is being built to react fast to the changing environment around us. I frankly believe that the news organizations that will actually cross this existing chasm today, this, this industry that does not have a sustainable long-term business model, those news organizations that will succeed are going to be the ones that, not, that, that react faster to changing environment as opposed to predict what the changing environment is going to be. Because I think all of us fail if we're trying to predict it. So from a culture identity point of view, there's really internal and external. Our hope internally is to be able to create shared language and shared values that will allow an organization that is growing, that today is about 1100 employees. Historically have been massively siloed in different departments, hoping that the silo walls will come down and that the entire organization will have at the very least singular North Star knowing where we are headed as a company and in, their, in each individual disciplines, each individual responsibilities, will be pulling towards uh, that, that, same, that same North Star. Shared language and shared values are extremely important for that. But then the second thing, more externally, is that we should have a brand that actually speaks to our history as a news organization as, and our aspirations of the future. And it's a brand that also has to be able to express all of that uh, equally, with the equal impact across all distribution channels. This is a very new problem in the age of the internet where we have to care about brand in that kind of, in that way, in that, with that precision. That we know we have X number of pixels to work with to be able to say this piece of reporting, and this truth, right, with this editorial line or voice or analysis or insight is attached to a brand of repute. And when we're working with pixels on a five-inch screen, that requires design that requires active thought about what the brand is supposed to represent, the emotions that it's supposed to eventually evoke, and how we are going to express all of these things across all these different channels. So the first transformation has been cultural internally and identity externally. As part of that, I I think those of you who sort of followed up over the course of the last year and a half about what's going on Uh, with the South China Morning Post have probably seen that we moved into a new office, which for whatever reason made a lot more noise than we expected it to. And I think it made a lot more noise because we designed that new office to express our uh, internal cultural values and because of that uh, the the, the office actually looks very very different than media offices in Hong Kong have historically and it's become this uh, almost kind of absurd in our minds uh, this tourist attraction for industry insiders, um, as well as other corporate entities, traditional, very, very traditional uh, corporate entities in Hong Kong, banks, um, government agencies actually, real estate companies that have rolled through to figure out how to redesign their own offices. Uh, It's become annoying enough that I actually just got an an email from some of our editors uh, suggesting that we should limit the number of tours that we give across our offices because they feel like they're caged animals at this point. but that the physical space has been a huge part of our cultural transformation. Because the cultural values that we stated about a year and a half ago and said that this is our base expectations of one another as colleagues, this is how we're going to live out our corporate life every day with one another, um, they have to, there has to be a physical space physical space that allows for that kind of, uh, of uh, corporate lifestyle. So when we talk about transparency, there has to actually be an office space that incentivizes transparency, right? Uh, when we talk about agility, uh, agility and dynamism, uh, we have to structure our newsroom and the rest of our office for the sake of free flow information and what we call uh, choreographed serendipity. For the sake of vibrancy and joy and diversity and organization, we have to have spaces that allow for that kind of social interaction. So um, the physical space has been uh, one of the most important changes that we've actually made to establish a new culture at the company. Anyway, so that's transformation number one, culture and identity. Transformation number two has been process and structure. Like I said, um, we think that the future of our news organization is more about reaction than it is about, uh, about forecast, right, about prediction. The industry is moving so fast, consumer behavior is changing no longer on a ten-year cycle, nor a five-year cycle, but effectively every six months, there's something new that we have to deal with, that we have to learn about, that we have to anticipate. That if we are a company that, which cannot react fast, um, it will be our death now. So the three ways in which we have changed process and structure First thing has been to, uh, to care deeply about focus. So as I said, The, the Post, as many news organizations who had profit in the past, uh, historically has bought into ancillary businesses, peripheral businesses. And what we call adjacencies, which I believe is a euphemism. Um, I generally refer to them as distractions. Uh, these adjacencies we've had to cut down on. We have to refocus the business and restructure the business so that we know our primary goal which is to trade in fact, which is to provide a conversation for truth gathering, distribution, and then the conversation and discourse around that truth, right? Uh, this becomes the singular focus of the company. The second transformation in process and structure has been quality. This should, be, this should not have to be uh, explicitly articulated for a news organization. But unfortunately, in today's world, it does have to be explicitly articulated. Now for us, it's not that we didn't have an intent for quality. It's that I don't think we had the structure to, uh, to, to again, incentivize quality across all of our different products. I'll give you one example. We had a, when I arrived, a 250, 260-person newsroom that ostensibly was digital first. Because our digital distribution at that point, which has since then significantly grown, but even at that point, was already much, much larger than our paper distribution in Hong Kong. A newspaper is only distributed, printed and distributed, in Hong Kong. It gets shipped by Cathay Pacific and a couple of other planes to different parts of the world, but it is primarily distributed in a home city. But the way that the actual newsroom operation on a daily basis worked was that everyone would be writing and publishing on digital first, but then they would use digital as a holding area for the print edition the next morning. Because the editors, each of the desk heads, were still, they still had the accountability for filling the actual printed pages. They still had column centimeters to care about. And they still, for whatever reason, felt like if the best version of the article must be the version that gets, that goes off stone at 1130, goes to the zinc plates at midnight, and is distributed by 4 a.m. the next morning. And so our reporters, as is sort of the, the cascading effect, Our journalists, our our editors, would use digital as a holding area. They would edit in the back end over and over again throughout the day, and then submit the best version of the article for print, sometimes without ever updating the version that has been published online. Our systems actually allowed for that, that kind of uh, divorce between editing and publishing. So our digital products were low quality. And because of this focus on making sure that the, the, the printed product had the, the best versions of the articles, it was a very traditional newsroom operation, even in 2017, where like all the effort and the energy kind of started at around 6 p.m. when the entire newsroom, Stuart knows this well, would get into gear to try and get the final edits in before 11.30 to make sure that the print paper was great. That made us slow. That, ga- that, that, that limited our ability to experiment online, to care about digital products, to care about digital user experience, uh, and to care about digital quality. So the change we made September of last year was like the Financial Times and the New York Times did for their international editions, we carved out a dedicated print team. It's now 25 people who are dedicated to print, and the rest of the newsroom, not only are they released from accountability, they actually now have absolutely no authority No say whatsoever, the desk heads, about what goes in the paper, in what order, or what it even looks like. So suddenly we went from, and at that point in September we probably had 300 people in our newsroom, we went from 260 people caring about the print product to 25 people caring about the print product, and 275 caring only, because that was the only thing they could control, the quality of their content on digital platforms. Almost overnight, the digital platforms, the quality of the writing, the uh, speed of experimentation, uh, all of that just improved almost overnight. Almost overnight. And the thing with the print product was that, and this was not surprising to us because we'd heard from the EFT, we would heard from the New York Times, that the quality of the print product actually also improved, even though there was only 25 people working on it. The reason it improved was because the source material that they're working from when the print team came in at 2.30 or 3 p.m., the quality of the stuff they were working with was already significantly better than it used to be. So over the course of the next eight hours before off-stone uh, time, their edits, they, they, they could actually get to off without major issues, without having to track down Reacts quotes and, and, uh, and additional sources, secondary sources, or whatever, to fill out the, uh, the, the rest of the, the, the articles, because all of that had already been, generally speaking, had already been done for digital. Okay? Um, the paper itself was also redesigned February of this past this this year, so just a couple months ago, which actually we templated most of the pages in our printed paper, which made it much easier to lay out. Uh, so we saved A1, A3, and the, the, the back page of the, the, uh, the main book, which is usually A10 or a12, um, as pages that we could that were custom, but almost everything else had a set of templates that we could use, and these templates were they don't lower the quality of the print product at all, and so the print product has actually improved in quality as well. So this was a second change within process of structure, restructured the newsroom for the sake of quality. We've done a number of other things as well. Um, part of it, the advantage is that we were able to grow the newsroom. Now the newsroom is at 350, so it's grown by 90 plus people over the course of the last year and a half. Um, so we've been able to create new desks and uh, and resource, uh, resource our. A journalism core with more people which is great as well. The third change within process of structure has been about speed and uh, that speed that that change has everything to do with uh, knowing how our audience is actually consuming our content and being able to react to it on a daily basis. I will talk more about data in my third section but this really is about teaching the newsroom uh, and equipping the newsroom with the tools necessary to be able to understand the data that we're capturing and to be able to react to the data that we're showing. So over the last really two years, I can't claim to be the, the, the genesis of this. The newsroom had already started working with data before I arrived, but we've certainly accelerated since, uh, since I took over as CEO. Uh, over the course of the last two years, the newsroom, especially newsroom leadership, has learned a lot about how to match data and editorial decision making, not to Uh, Replace editorial decision making with data because we as a news organization don't believe in that but how to match those two things to uh, Elevate the overall understanding across the entire newsroom of what our audience wants But also more importantly what we believe they need so our speed of reaction in the newsroom has increased quite a bit part of that also is the overall operating cadence of the company we now have gone to instead of setting annual goals and only reviewing, looking at how the businesses work, is operating every year, to setting quarterly goals um, and changing how the, the business is shifting every three months. But more importantly, our leadership team is now looking at uh, all of the analytics across all of the business um, and, and reviewing div- division by division, departments for us, 13 different departments within the organization, what everyone's working on to make sure, again, we're heading in the right direction, the same direction. What everyone's working on, we're reviewing it now once a week. Uh, and, and it has allowed us, a, as a company, to react on a weekly basis to effectively real-time information and real-time feedback from the marketplace. So that's been a huge change. The third uh, parallel path of transformation is product and technology, not surprisingly. For us, we have to invest in technology We have to invest in technology not only because it's 2018 and it's about time, but because it's what's going to make our organization bionic. That's the word I keep using. Bionic means that with tech and with the institutional, as well as academic, and experiential knowledge of our people, if you match those two things together, as an organization, we will be able to move faster, create with better quality, with better precision, and, and, uh, and just end up our output as a better product. So our investment in the tools and systems, not just front-end, it's not just about how beautiful scmp.com or our new products look, user experience which I'll talk about next is really important, but it's about equipping our people with tools and systems that just make them faster and make them better at their jobs. This is as simple as having artificial intelligence uh, suggest tags for our news articles. That's back in systems that are not sexy, that you'll not see, and probably most news organizations don't talk about. Why does that matter? Why why is it that AI being able to label your article, why does that matter? In the past, what we required was somebody to have already spent hours and hours, if not days, if not weeks, working on a, a piece. And as they're submitting it for publishing, they have to decide which tags to associate with the article. So that in the future, it's easier to archive, it's easier to, to sort of pull up for, uh, for, you know, relevant sourcing or whatnot. But if a human does it, especially after hours and hours working on it, they're going to, I mean, at best, a China article is going to be, I'm going to hashtag it China, I'm going to hashtag it diplomacy, and that's it. They're not going to take the time to identify every asset that is within that article, every entity that is mentioned, the individual people names or company names, or relational uh, dynamics. Artificial intelligence can do that without, can suggest that and the editors can actually add or remove, right, uh, with very, very little effort. And what that means in the future is that when our journalists are rewriting an article in five years about the Singapore summit that just happened yesterday, they're not just searching Singapore summit and hope to get the articles from yesterday. They are, they're searching, they can search, you know, Kim Trump and get the historical context the entire corpus of work that the South China Morning Post has written for however many years they can go deep into I don't know maybe there's something special about the Capella uh, hotel that we don't even know about right now right? and we have first-person accounts of the actual meeting at the Capella Hotel in Singapore they can search the entity of Capella and understand and see the corpus of reporting on the Capella and why that hotel was chosen for this meeting And there is a depth of knowledge that is now available to journalists in the future that is not available even though we have 115 years of archives today. So these are small things that are systems and tools that we have to invest in beyond just front-end product that will make our journalists better. So that's what I mean by uh, uh, creating bionic people. Another simple thing, by the way, and this might shock all of you guys. Until December of 2017, until seven months ago, the South China Morning Post's newsroom did not operate on laptops, we had desktops. This is probably the reason why Stewart needed a break and needed to come to Reuters Institute, which meant that when Stewart went out to report, to file, he had to rush back to the newsroom, to file on a desktop that is literally anchored to his desk. That's crazy. Uh, so, December 2017, seven months ago, we deployed laptops, and not only that, we deployed a web CMS system, which hopefully most of the other news organizations that are represented in this room have been using for years. I'm hoping that's the case, which means that our journalists can now write, edit, and, uh, and publish from anywhere in the world at any time without having to sign into VPN, uh, without having to rush back to the newsroom. Systems changes that make uh, the entire newsroom operation fundamentally different. Um, UX, I'll mention very, very quickly. The user experience of front-end products is really, really important in this day and age because uh, consumers have too much choice. In the past, it used to be we print this product, and however we laid it out, because we deliver it directly to your door, you have no choice. You're locked into this user experience. And my expectation is most of you are going to flip from front page all the way to the end and you'll skip articles you're not interested in, but I have control over your entire experience. That's not the case today. Users can go from article to article without, without you having a say at all in, uh, in, in, in sort of their journey, their path. At the same time, they can also choose any number of discovery channels and any number of consumption channels. And the permutation of those two things create new products that we as news organizations also have no control over. We need to regain control of that, which means that news organizations like ours need to become product companies that are obsessed with user experience. I can talk a little bit more about that if there's interest in the room. But our entire product development process has completely changed. Where When I first arrived, when we were building a new product, the first thing that was shown to me was a wireframe of a homepage. Okay, we're creating a new product. They will first show me what the homepage is going to look like on desktop completely irrelevant in 2018. What your homepage looks like on desktop, completely irrelevant. The success of your product will have nothing to do with what your homepage looks like on desktop. So now the first thing they show me is either Google search results page, it's not even our product, it's what what you see if you search for something on Google, or what you see when you're on the Facebook newsfeed on mobile. That's the first thing they show me. So when we're designing our products, they're not even showing me our product, they're showing me somebody else's product but I know it's gonna be the first point of entry or first point of discovery for all of our consumers. And then from there on out, you have to take me through a user journey of how this new user discovers our content for the first time, and then how we are going to incentivize them to get to the second click after which we now have a one-on-one relationship with that user. It is an enormous paradigm shift in how user experience and product is created within a news organization and it has to be one of obsession For news companies from here on out. And then the third thing uh, that again I mentioned briefly is data. We all know at this point how important of a currency data is. Uh, If you're not convinced for a news organization that data is important, I do beg you to actually reconsider. Because data is not just important because of user metrics of MAU and DAU and engagement time and all that stuff. It is what, I'm just ta- what I just talked about, the changes that we made, that we're making for auto-tagging. It's the fact that we as companies who trade in information, we are information companies. Right? Information today needs to be parsed. It needs to be structured. It needs to be searchable. It needs to be intelligent. And it needs to be literally uh, every word that is written, the structure of the sentences, the relationship and the semantics of how you've written over the course of 115 years for us of history, all of that needs to be quantifiable, needs to be something that you can actually feed into machines, again, eventually, to make your entire newsroom and newsroom operations smarter. That is all data. So, over the course of the last year, the South China Morning Post has invested heavily in rebuilding our entire data infrastructure. The, the, the databases, the systems, the business intelligence layers sitting on top of that, those databases. Uh, rebuilding a data uh, engineering and data analytics team. Rebuilding all the dashboards, the way that we actually view data as, uh, as, as leaders and the way we react to it. And we're just, just, just now at the start of all of these changes. Because artificial intelligence, both natural language processing and then eventually natural language uh, generation will come, but it will have to come much faster than all of us assume. So in this investment of product and technology, we have gone in a year from having a team of 40 people who did front-end product, all of the back-end infrastructure tools and systems as well as traditional IT. 40 people, now we have 120, so we have uh, tripled the team, the size of the team to be able to actually support the future of the news organization in that way. Before I end, and I apologize, I've talked for a long time, one thing I will acknowledge that I have not mentioned at all, which I have been referring to internally and externally as our Datanyang, which is the troublemaking fourth Musketeer, is monetization. I have not mentioned monetization as, at all. It's not to say that we don't care about revenue. It is to say that we, us, very specifically the South China Morning Post, has this very unique luxury of not having to drive our decision-making and our investment based on bottom-line profit today. Very, very fortunate, very rare. This is not going to last. This is not a sustainable business strategy to not focus on bottom-line profit or not make investment decisions with an intent on bottom-line profit. Uh, But we have a few years. uh, This is because our owners are, are well aware that for us to cross the chasm uh, to actually turn the news organization around and truly transform. We will need to invest not with, a, without a, well, invest with clear strategy and precise strategy, but not with the gun of profit to our heads, because we will make short-term decisions if that's the case. And for us across the GASM, we have to make long-term decisions and long-term bets today. So I'm happy to talk about what we think the future uh, revenue strategy for news organizations are going to be. I don't have great answers. But I'm I'm happy to share with you my thoughts Uh, but I hope that this gave you a relatively comprehensive view into how the SCMP is transforming. Um, We're not scared of being fully transparent with this because first of all we think that a rising tide lifts all boats across the industry and this is something that I'm very uh, thankful for the Reuters Institute for uh, that Reuters Institute actually allows and creates space for news organizations to come together to share this intelligence and at SEMP, we want to participate in that fully and be transparent with what we are doing, hoping that there will be at least something of intelligence in what I just said and something that other news organizations can apply and, and improve with. So, thank you for listening to me ramble on for 40 minutes. Thank you, Gary, right. thank you.